Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the introduction to Esther. And while I usually do this in a classroom, I am doing it at my daughter's house with an audience of one. So here we go. Um, normally we sing, and she's already told me she will not sing. So my song was Leaning on the Everlasting Arms and How Great Thou Art. So y'all can look those up because it, they really do well with this intro. Anyway, let's open in prayer. Father, I just thank you for your word. I would have perished in my afflictions had it not been for your word. Lord, I pray you would fill me with your spirit that I may speak only your words, Lord, and anything I plan to, to say today that is not of you, that you would take it away, and anything that you won't put in, Lord, that you would do it. And what we know not teach us, Lord, and what we have not give us, Lord, and what we are not make us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, the book of Esther was uh, the last of the five books in a collection that was known in the, as the Megaloth. And these were scrolls that were designated to be read publicly at the Feasts of Israel. Others included the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes. Esther was to be read at the Feast of Purim, which is commemoration of the great deliverance of the Jews that God had brought about through Esther. To get to the date straight in our minds of this book, which because a lot of times in Old Testaments they don't go um, in chronological order, um, we're going to go look at this for just a second. Um, Exerces became king of Persia in 486 B.C. And this was about 34 years after the temple was completed in Haggai. Esther became queen in 479 B.C. And the first feast of Purim was held in 473 B.C., six years after she became queen. The events of this book took place about 30 years prior to the return of the exiles to Jerusalem under Ezra around 458 B.C. and Nehemiah around 445 B.C. Even though it, in the canon of Scripture, Esther comes um, after the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, it is thought that the accomplishments of Ezra, Mordecai, and Daniel all helped pave the way for the returning Jews. The book of Esther is not just a story with a moral. It is a very important historical event. The Hebrew nation's deliverance from annihilation in the days following the Babylonian captivity. No Hebrew nation, no Messiah. No Messiah, a lost world. This beautiful Jewish girl of long ago, though she herself probably had no inkling of it, played her part in paving the way for the coming of the world's Savior. Amazing. Red flag here, red flag. One rarely, if ever, knows the full impact of their obedience or their disobedience, for that matter, to God's bidding and the importance thereof. Never underestimate the power of a faithful, obedient life. Never. It will be all too clear in heaven. <laughs> Think about 1 Corinthians. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part. Then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. This story shows us that God's favor can cause civil law to be reversed. It also shows how God uses his faithful servants to influence and direct ungodly authority. What a comfort this is for us in our world today, which has so many ungodly leaders, so much strife, 
We must be faithful to pray for the civil servants so that God's plan may be done through them as it was through Esther. Indeed, Scripture tells us, now we, just what I quoted in 1 Corinthians, we see but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Haman schemed to exterminate the Jews in the Persian Empire. And since virtually all Jews lived within that realm of the empire which extended from India to Ethiopia, Haman's plot threatened to wipe out the Jewish people totally. Yet Haman's diabolical plan to exterminate God's people was sure to fail while God was protecting his own. It always will. It always will. The fact that Esther asked the Jews residing in the capital city to demonstrate that she was relying on God's help to resolve their desperation, their desperate situation. Just as God took ways to defeat Haman's plot, so too does he still orchestrate the protection of those that are his. His plans will never be thwarted. God is ever on his throne, providentially ruling and overruling, working out everything according to his glorious will. Always. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. God himself says, remember this. Fix it in your minds. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things of long ago. That's why God is always telling us, remember, remember, remember. Teach your children, teach your children, teach your children. Because we are so prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. And back to Isaiah, he says, Remember the former things of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what's yet to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. When omniscience has lost its eyesight, and omnipotence falls back impotent, and Jehovah is driven from his throne, then the church of Jesus Christ can afford to be despondent. But never until then. Despots may plan, and armies may march, and the congresses of the nations may seem to think they are adjusting all the affairs of the world. But the mighty men of the earth are only the dust of the chariot wheels of God's providence. That's by Talmadge. And this period of time that we're in right now, this quarantine period, in a, in, in a day's time almost, it seems as if God shut the world down. Who but God can do such a thing? Who but God would know this? God is so totally other. He is unique in every way. Proofs of his uniqueness include his knowledge and control of the future. Isaiah also records, declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. God protects his people and he will always have a remnant. Always. 
He is orchestrating his purposes toward this, his desired end. This is demonstrated throughout all of God's word from the very beginning to the end. A few examples would be Abraham. Number one, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your shield. Your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offering be, offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as his righteousness. I think about Isaiah when God is talking to, to all these people who were serving Baals. And he's going to lift your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. The skies, the heavens, as David says, proclaims the power of God. Moses is another example. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people to the, to the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? That's a good question to ask, God. Who am I? In light of you, Lord, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Let, God's just saying, let it be known. This is going to come to pass. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. David then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, Lord God Almighty? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, O God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. What more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant, O Lord, for the sake of your servant and according to your will. You have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. There is no one like you, O oh Lord, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. In Jesus, all that the Father gives me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me, just as all of us are supposed to be about. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And lastly, Paul, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Lord. Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Throughout Esther, we also see portrayed a profound interaction between God's sovereignty and human will. Esther, as do we, as did Abraham, Moses, David, Paul, and even Jesus, had a choice to be obedient or not, and it was most often a very scary one. Believe me, most of our choices are, fear not, is the most common phrase in scripture. Yet we see the golden thread of the theme of obedience throughout Esther. As noted, obedience often carries with it great fear. Yet, all our fears and sufferings will one day be incomparably upstaged for believers in Christ. Praise Jesus. We must remember this when we have to step out in faith and in fear, not knowing the outcome, yet trusting in the one who is leading us. F.B. Meyer writes, We sometimes seem to forget that what God takes, he takes in fire, and that the only way to the resurrection life and the ascension mount is the way of the garden, the cross, and the grave. Think not, O soul of man, that Abraham's was a unique and solitary experience. It is simply a specimen and pattern of God's dealings with all souls who are prepared to obey him at whatever the cost. After thou hast patiently endured, thou shalt receive the promise. The moment of supreme sacrifice shall be the moment of supreme and rapturous blessing. God's river, which is full of water, shall burst its banks and pour open thee a tide of wealth and grace. There is nothing indeed which God will not do for a man who dares to step out upon what seems to be the mist, though he, as he puts his foot down, he finds the rock beneath him. Always, always. It is so important to note that the dangers we go through are carefully measured. God sets limits, as he did for Job. I think of Joshua after the death of Moses, prior to leading the great throng of Jewish people into the promised land. 
He had to be terrified. God tells him, no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land. I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Courage doesn't come before you step out. Courage is built as you step out. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Samuel Clark writes, A fixed, constant attention to the promises and a firm belief in them would prevent solicitude and anxiety about the concerns of this life. It would keep the mind quiet and composed in every change and support and keep up our sinking spirits under the several troubles of life. Christians deprive themselves of their most solid comforts by their unbelief and forgetfulness of God's promises. For there is no extremity so great, but there are promises suitable to it and abundantly sufficient for our relief in it. In the Women's Devotional Bible, this was written by Dorothy Patterson in its service through Providence. Effective service almost always comes by assignment rather than choice. When my husband and I accompanied our college mission team to East Africa, we suspected that many of our tasks would be lowly, but we assumed that our ministry would be primarily spiritual. Once there, I was needed to prepare meals for the students, and my husband was enlisted to assist the medical team in dispensing medications to patients in bush clinics. Neither of us used our theological training, but we both were called to serve, and in that serving, we were able to share Christ to countless people. A member of a hated minority race bereft of parents without any material legacy, living in exile in a foreign land, untutored by for formal education, Esther had been reared and trained by her older cousin, Mordecai. In God's providence, this teenage orphan was thrust into the royal court of Persia. I mean, you can't make this up. This is so God's plan. And you're not going to put him in a box either. Though perhaps not as far-reaching in influence as Esther, we are each what God has made us with our own respective circles of opportunities. In opportunities lies a real test of character. Though we usually think of affliction as the major test of character, in Esther's case, prosperity and fame were her testing ground. Mordecai believed that Esther was placed in the king's household by divine appointment to do God's timely work. He passionately pleaded with Esther to put her life on the line because he believed the promises of God. He had watched the power and faithfulness of God unfold over the years. Mordecai understood that it was not failure that brings despair, 
but unfaithfulness and idleness. Esther had her opportunity, and we have ours. A difficult and dangerous human task is no excuse for, fa for failing to perform divinely assigned duties. God chooses where we are called to serve. We choose, as did Esther, whether or not to respond to obedience to that call. Go where you're sent, um, stay where you're put, and don't move until he leaves you, and bloom where you're planted. It is, give all you got. It is not the business of the servant, Amy Carmichael writes, to decide which work is great. I think about all, all my mothers that are there. I mean, it doesn't seem that great when you're changing a diaper. It doesn't seem that uh, awesome when you're reading a Bible story to your children at night. It doesn't seem that earth-shattering when you're praying with them. All of these things that you're putting in are adding up to one glorious faithful life and that's what we're called to do it's not what man thinks that's important it's what God thinks we live our lives quorum Deo before the face of God every single one of us and we're not only accountable for our money that we have or that has been given to us but also for our time it is not the business of the servant to decide which is which work is great and which is small which important or unimportant he is not greater than his master. If by doing some work which the undiscerning consider not spiritual work, I can best help others, and I inwardly rebel, thinking it's the spiritual for which I crave, when in truth it's the interesting and the exciting, then I know nothing of Calvary love. But Jesus is calling us to stop and notice, to live alert, to give a special touch that may heal a heart or cheer a weary soul. I once heard it said that Jesus' real ministry was the person he found standing right in front of him. It happens as you go along the routine and unexpected corners of your life as you go along. Jill Briscoe states, as we just said, go where you're sent, stay where you're put, until he moves you, and do all you can. Also, we can be sure that if God sends us forth on perhaps stony paths, he will also provide us with strong shoes. His servants go forth equipped with his power to do his bidding for his glory and for their good. There is no sweeter place to be than right in the smack dab in the center of his will, mature and fully assured. He is ever looking for the obedient to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Second Chronicles says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Obedience requires actions on our parts. Many times God calls us to wait. To wait on his perfect timing. But then there are times that he says, Go. I just was reading in, uh, in Judges today of Gideon. He goes, It's time. Go. I'm going to hand the Midianites over to you in your hand. All, just all three of you are going to take over all of these Midianites. They're more countless than the sand in the seashore. And he goes, but if you're afraid, Gideon, come here in the middle of the night, and I'll show you. This will encourage you. And he sent forth a word. He went down, 
Gideon and his servant went down, Puah went down to, to the camp of the Midianites, and they overheard the Midianites talking one to another, and they said, I had a dream last night about this rock coming down, this bread coming down and, and, and destroying all the Midianites. And the other man said it could be nobody more than Gideon. And encouraged by those words, Gideon took those 300 men and annihilated the Midianites. Obedience requires our action. Sometimes it's get up and go, and sometimes it's wait. But just as he told Joshua, just as he told Moses and Ananias, he tells us, don't be mistaken. His will is always accomplished, and if we're not in it, he'll get somebody to do it if we choose not to, but we're the losers in that. Um, in Streams of the Desert, this was, I thought this was really good. I have begun to give, begin to possess. It's taken from Deuteronomy uh, 2.31. A great deal is said in the Bible about waiting for God. The lesson cannot be too strongly enforced. We easily grow impatient of God's delays. Much of our, think about Moses. I mean, think about Abraham, you know. I mean, he was promised his son. He was promised heirs and his countless and his stars in the sky. And he's like, okay, Lord, when is this going to come about? You know, my wife is old in years, used up. I mean, when is this really going to happen? Much of our trouble in life comes out of our restless, sometimes reckless haste. We cannot wait for the fruit to ripen, but insist on plucking it while it's still green. It takes so much time to build a vessel that's worthy of use. He pours in 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 things that have happened to us over our lifetimes, and he uses those things to bring about good. We cannot wait for for answers to our prayers, although the things we ask for may require long years in their preparation for us. We are exhorted to walk with God, but oftentimes God walks very slowly. But there is another phase of the lesson. God often waits for us. We fail many times to receive the blessing he has ready for us because we do not go forward with him. While we miss much good through not waiting for God, we also miss much through overwaiting. There are times when our strength is to sit still, but there are time, also times when we are to go forward with a firm step. There are many divine promises which are conditioned upon the beginning of some action on our part. When we begin to obey, God will begin to bless. Just like I said about the care, the, uh, the um, courage, it comes as you go forth. Great things have promised to Abraham, but not one of them could have been obtained in, by waiting in Chaldea. Not one of them. He must leave his home. He must leave his friends. He must leave his country and go into an unknown past and press on in unfaltering obedience in order to receive the promise. And it's press on. It's not just like, oh, being carried to heaven on a bed of down. The ten lepers were told to show themselves to the priests. As they went, they were cleansed. As they were being obedient to go to the priests, as Jesus said, they were cleansed. If they had waited to see the cleansing come in their flesh before they would start, they would have never seen it. God was waiting to cleanse them. And the moment their faith began to work, the blessings came. God works in our faith. When the Israelites were shut in by pursuing an army in the Red Sea, they were commanded to go forward. 
Now that had to be scary. Their duty was no longer one of waiting, but of rising up from bended knees and going forward in the way of heroic faith. They were commanded to show their faith at another time by beginning their march over the Jordan while the river ran to its widest banks. Again, scary, flood season. The key to unlock the gate into the land of promise they held in their own hands. Obedience! And the gate would not turn on its hinges until they had approached it and unlocked it. Obedience! The key was faith. We are set to fight certain battles. We say we can never be victorious, that we never can conquer these enemies. But as we enter the conflict, one, capital O, comes and fights by our side. And through him, we are more than conquerors. If we had waited, trembling and fearing, for our helper to come before we would join the battle, we should have waited in vain. See, he wants us to know that I will be with you always. I will be with you always. This would have been the overweighting of unbelief. God is waiting to pour richest blessings upon you. Press forward with bold confidence to, to take what is yours. I have begun to give, begin to possess. When we are fearful, when we walk forth in obedience, like the song we, we were supposed to sing, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, we sang today, we are not to lean upon, um, we are to lean upon his everlasting, all-powerful, loving arms. We're to lean upon him. He is our strength. In, in um, Psalm 18, you know, I love you, O Lord, my strength. My, my God is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is. Not me. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. And then David goes through a litany of things that had happened to him. He does the work in us and then through us. Nothing eternal, nothing eternal is ever accomplished through earthly power. Nothing. It's just going to be burned up. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemy before you, saying, destroy him. God will not give us an assignment, Michael Yusuf says, and then just walk away to let us do the work alone. What good is that? He provides the resources we need to get the job done. He walks with us every step of the way, guiding and encouraging us. He will never abandon us when we allow him to work through us. In the words of the psalmist, you hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and you will take me into glory. Spurgeon writes, God, the eternal God, is our support at all times, especially when we are sinking into deep trouble. There are seasons we sink quite low, dear friends. Even when we were at your lowest, underneath you are everlasting arms. However low the people of God are at any time brought, everlasting arms underneath them to keep their spirits from fainting and their faith from failing, even when they are pressed above measure. I think about that man who wanted his son healed, and he said, these people, you just lack faith. He goes, I, I have faith, but help my unbelief. You know, it, I, I need more, Lord. Help me. Help me. They're even they are pressed above measure, everlasting arms, with 
which believers have been wonderfully sustained and kept cheerful in the worst of times. Divine grace is sufficient. Let's close in prayer. Father, help us to lean on your everlasting arms. Let us to be all you would have us to be. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to go forth in your power for your glory, for our good. Strengthen us, Lord, in these frames. And help us to... to, uh, Just stand firm in all your will, mature and fully assured. I ask all these things for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Two things. Okay. I forgot to lower this. I think this should be lower. I was looking. Okay. And you might need to look more. That was awesome. Up at you. Uh, Up at the camera, not at me. Yeah, I meant that. That's what I meant. I meant that. Um. I wonder how long it took. 31 minutes. Oh, shoot. Turn this off. Turn that one off. How do you do it? Just Red button.